from PRX. Stew. Stew. D-D-F-F. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Now don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pen. being sniffy. I think I'm you a, are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, we don't nurture enough black storytellers and filmmakers. Explore the world with an open mind is a really beautiful thing. What am I going to do? I am cursed with this need to teach. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. Jordan Peele is best known as the not-as-tall half of the brilliant comedy team Key and Peele, and he's directed his first film. It's called Get Out. So you guys coming up from the city? Yeah, we're just heading up for the weekend. Can I see your license, please? He wasn't driving. I didn't ask who was driving. I asked to see his ID. It's a smart critique of relations between black and white Americans. We hired Georgina and Walter to help care for my parents. When they died, I couldn't bear to let them go. Beale depicts some subtler aspects of race relations in a horror movie, which struck me as something that maybe has never been done before. I figured that University of Michigan professor Robin Means Coleman could provide some essential context. Her book is called Horror Noir, Blacks in American Horror Films from the 1890s to Present, and she's got her own typology. I'm making a distinction that there are two kinds of horror films, Blacks in Horror Films and Black Horror Films. Blacks in Horror Films, these could be horror films that have black characters, but that aren't about blackness specifically. There are some specific archetypes. There is the magical Negro. My grandmother and I could hold conversations entirely without ever opening our mouths. She called it shining. There is the comic relief. But we've never shut down the entire system before. It may not come back on at all. Hold on to your butt. Black horror films are quite the opposite. There's a narrative thrust about black life and culture and experiences. They are black cast films. Horror films that star black actors, but are also mostly made by black filmmakers, such as... Blackula. Blackula. Dracula's soul brother. Ganja and Hess. There's no possible way for you to know this, but I'm the only colored on the block. Hails from the hood. They are not going to do an orientation first about here are black people and here's where they live and here's, you know, sort of translation of the vernacular. They are going to start with a presumption that you understand black life and culture. And my bride to Europe on a mission to protest the slave trade. I was placed under the curse of the undead. So they are cautionary tales for black audiences about how to be upright citizens to improve their communities, keep drugs out of the community, fight back against police brutality, fight back against political corruption. Of course, those movies were mostly low budget and didn't necessarily play at the Cineplex in Peoria, which Coleman says lets horror take risks in ways that other genres don't. 
We don't have high expectations for horror films. We don't imagine that they're going to be Academy Award-winning films. That allows them to have conversations about things in our social and political world that we wouldn't typically have. There are no safe territories within horror. That's the point of the genre, and I think that it works well to interrogate the things in society that scare us. Jordan Peele's new movie, with a good budget, does exactly that. Get Out is about a 26-year-old black photographer meeting his white girlfriend's nice doctor parents. But when he arrives at their house for the weekend, things get a little weird. Then, much weirder. Jordan Peele came to the studio to talk about Get Out, but we started by listening to this. Why don't white people just leave the house when there's a ghost in the house? Very simple. It's a ghost in the house. Get the f*** out. I would have been in the house and said, oh, baby, this is beautiful. We got a chandelier hanging up here, kids outside playing. It's a beautiful neighborhood. We ain't got nothing to wear. I really love them. This is really nice. Get out. Too bad we can't stay, baby. Yeah, that's classic. Eddie Murphy, um, yeah, the difference between white people and, and black people in, in a horror movie scenario. Right. Classic. Was the fact that his, his, his recurring motif line is, get out! Was that yeah. an inspiration? This movie, Get Out, was made in a lot of ways to address the, the lack of representation in horror movies. Yep. And, and a piece of that, that representation is the, the sort of sensibilities that a lot of, you know, you, you, know, you go to a black neighborhood, watch a, a horror movie, you'll hear a lot of people saying, get, come on, get out. Yeah. get out. Come on, get out. the ha- Come yeah. on. No, yeah. no, no, no. So I wanted to make a movie that sort of addressed that. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and in, in this movie, the lead – you know, if he doesn't make the smart decision, then at least you understand why. Yeah. I don't know another film quite like it in all that it combines. It is this smart comedy of manners, but it's also this scary sci-fi horror thriller. But like you say, we we haven't seen this movie. Right. Um, and one of the reasons we, we haven't is because, you know, race is the central theme here. And it's an entertaining uh, horror movie. You know, the, you don't think of how how that could work, especially because we don't nurture enough black storytellers and filmmakers. Right, right. We haven't supported young artists enough to get platforms to tell this type of story with this kind of perspective. It, it also just, I think, it strikes particularly white producers, who the vast majority of them are, of course. Uh, real touchy to do something that deals yeah. with themes of victimization of black people, right. villainization of white people. Right. I, I wrote the movie with, you know, the Stepford Wives in mind. Uh-huh. Rosemary's Baby. Uh-huh. Yes. Well, the way those movies are about gender was like a cue to me, like, you know what? You can do it about race. Right. Exactly. Now I get it. Um, uh, for instance, to give uh, listeners a sense, that this character played by uh, Bradley Whitford, who is Alison Williams' character's father, says very sincerely to your main character, this black guy, oh, no, he, I, I would have voted for Obama a third time, which – and you, you play the joke twice and it gets a bigger <laughs> laugh the second time. That's right. It, I, I think part of this movie is to show that even in these seemingly harmless conversations, being on the other side of them, they add up. And they add up to a clue that even in the most sort of progressive – 
environments, we still see the world in terms of right. race. Of course, I played Eddie, an Eddie Murphy clip for you first thing, but then you've made a movie about race. <laughs> I, I invited it. I invited it. Um, uh, great cast in this film. Lakeith Stanfield, whom I recognized uh, from Atlanta, and your lead. Uh, Daniel Kaluuya. Yeah, whom I recognized from Black Mirror. Amazing. Right? And were you tempted at all, or was it off the table for you at the beginning to cast yourself, say, as his friend, the TSA agent. You know, it occurred to me, but, you know, at the end of the day, all I can say is I, I just didn't get the role. <laughs> uh, your casting of the white people mm-hmm. couldn't have been better. And so you need a liberal, middle-aged, well-to-do couple and their daughter. I would think that for these characters, Bradley Whitford and and Catherine Keener and Alison Williams would, like, be number one or two on those lists. I can't imagine the film having been, you know, cast with anyone else. Yes. For that subversion, I wanted like just exactly what you said. Yeah. These these are actually the most ideal Caucasian in-laws this guy could <laughs> yes. could ask for. Yes. The the less normal white people who are all these secondary characters, I, as I watch them, I, well, they all look kind of overripe in a certain way, <laughs> like they are they're relatives of Steve Bannon's or something. You know, <laughs> that's great. One cannot watch this film or make this film without uh, thinking of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Yes, the nineteen sixty seven movie. Yeah. Uh, this is the scene where Sidney Poitier meets his soon to be mother in law, played of course by Catherine Hepburn, for the first time. So pleased to meet you. Mrs. Drayton, I'm medically qualified, so I hope you wouldn't think it presumptuous if I say you ought to sit down before you fall down, I mean. He thinks you're going to faint because he's a Negro. Well, I don't think I'm going to faint. But I'll sit down anyway. The big difference between, you know, uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and and Get Out uh, in the setup is, you know, Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn are are meant to be these open-minded sort of left-leaning family. And then when he arrives there, it's you re- see on their face this, oh, not, but not in my family yep. kind of uh, situation. Here's the comparable scene from Get Out. So how long has this been going on, this, this thing? <laughs> how long? <laughs> Four months. Four months? Mm. Uh, five months, actually. She's right. Atta boy, better get used to saying that. <laughs> I, please, I'm so sorry. That was Bradley Whitford and Catherine Keener and Allison Williams and a little tiny bit of Daniel Kaluuya. Uh, even even the, the 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 phrase "atta boy," Chris. You know, it's one of those things that even if it don't, you don't really confront what's uncomfortable there. There's something uh, you know underneath it, and the feeling of isolation that one can have is in any marginalized group or really anybody who feels like an outsider or an other and vacillating between feelings of, oh, well, maybe I'm just being paranoid and right. this is not happening or maybe this – I am seeing exactly what I think I'm seeing. Uh, so there is some kinship between comedy and horror. Oh, yeah? totally. I think they're twins. They're, they're the shining twins of genres. <laughs> For my money, they both depend on a certain amount of groundedness, a certain amount of reality that – um, something only going to be as funny as it is applied to reality right. or, or, or true emotion in my book. Something's only going to be as scary as it is feels like it exists in this real world. So is the takeaway meant to be, oh, this interracial thing can work out? 
or, hey, black people, white people are out to get you. Don't believe <laughs> it when they're nice. It's uh, that's all that part of it's all kind of meant to be in, in good fun. Right. Again, like how the, the way I, I, I didn't feel persecuted by Rosemary's Baby right. or, or Stepford Wives, even though I'm a man. I think the real takeaway for me is that if you are somebody who relates to Chris's journey, you'll you'll finally see this perspective in a film. And you'll recognize it and you'll realize, yeah, how, how come I've never seen this? How come I've never seen this? Um, if you don't, if you are a stranger to this journey, well, that's the power of story is you get to live in, in this other character's perspective. And that to me is just very – that's a very powerful thing and, and I think it promotes empathy. I agree with you. You know, partially it's you know for us to see our skin in genre films I think is important. But also, you know, the concept that the amazing Eddie Murphy clip sort of channeled, which is, you know, why don't why don't people do what we would do? You know, the white experience could could be said to be less fraught with uh, tensions and um, fears and and everyday racism. And so, there are things that black people are going to perceive of that white people may not. You know, Night of the Living Dead, I think part of the reason Dwayne Jones' character, the, you know, the black lead in that, he was so ready to operate and take charge in, the, in that story was because, you know, he lived in Jim Crow right. America. He, he's, he's been dealing with fear and persecution and the fear that people could be coming for him at any point. And so he's, when, when that crisis strikes, he's ready. Right. So now you are an auteur. You have written and directed this very, very good movie. Thank you. Was it what you expected? Um, it was. It was harder. Every morning, I'd have this, you know, a little transcendental moment where you just breathe and meditate and go, "Look, I'm here. This is, this is my dream come true. Like, don't let this pass without enjoying it." And then at night, I would do the same thing, but with tears coming out of my eyes over Skype with my wife. So I had this ritual of, of appreciating where I was. Jordan Peele, thank you very much. Thank you. This is great. Get Out is in theaters now. Coming up, a musical genius who didn't want to overthink music. Music is never about anything. Music just is. How Leonard Bernstein made classical music entrancing for ordinary American kids. That's up next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Nineteen fifty-seven was huge for Leonard Bernstein. In September of that year, the musical West Side Story opened on Broadway, with Bernstein's music to lyrics by twenty-seven-year-old Stephen Sondheim, and it became an instant hit. I like to be in America. Okay, by me in America. Everything free in America. For a small fee in America. Right around the same time, Bernstein became the conductor and music director of the New York Philharmonic. When Bernstein took that big job, he agreed a key part of it would be doing a series of concerts for very young people. And he insisted that those concerts be broadcast on the new medium of television. With that, an unlikely TV star was born, 
As part of our ongoing series on American icons, Sarah Fishko takes us there. Carnegie Hall in New York City, the home of the world's greatest musical events. Today's event is one in a series of New York Philharmonic Young People's Concerts. To explore the Young People's Concerts. Under the musical direction of Leonard Bernstein. Written and hosted by the very multi-talented Mr. Bernstein is to explore the thoughts and spirit of that man the composer and maestro known as Lenny. And here is Mr. Bernstein. He was a new kind of maestro. He had a rare openness, recalls Arnie Lang, who was for five decades a percussionist in the New York Philharmonic. Because with all the years I played with so many different conductors, I knew nothing about them. But Bernstein, he always felt, was a person... The idea of doing classical concerts for young people was not new. But starting in the 1950s, Bernstein made it new by pouring every ounce of his personal self into every single concert broadcast, starting with concert number one in January 1958, when Lenny strode out from backstage at Carnegie Hall, lifted his baton, and led the orchestra in a stirring rendition of this then-popular favorite. Right from the start, Bernstein gave to his young audience, and he took away. After the attention-getting fun of the piece by Rossini that kids everywhere recognized as the opening theme from The Lone Ranger, he slid right into the lesson for the day. But it really isn't about The Lone Ranger at all. It's about notes, E-flats and F-sharps. You see, no matter how many times people tell you stories about what music means... Forget them. Stories aren't what music means at all. Music is never about anything. Music just is. Music just is. If that sounds like a sophisticated message, it was. Whether delivered from the podium or from the piano, which was positioned on stage so Bernstein could sit down and play to illustrate. Take this piece by Chopin. Beautiful, isn't it? But what's it about? Nothing. Bernstein was convinced that young people could understand anything if it was well delivered. Adults had already been exposed to Bernstein's musical musings on TV earlier in the 50s. He had appeared on the landmark show Omnibus, a Sunday culture program, just as Arturo Toscanini, conductor of the NBC Symphony, had finished his run on television. Author Alicia Kufstein Pank wrote a book on the Young People's Concert. Toscanini stopped filming in 1954, and 1954 is when Bernstein shook the world with his uh, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, where he painted the score on the floor. So that was just brilliant TV for 1954. The whole atmosphere for the mass consumption of serious music seemed to change overnight. Then the oboe. Though you'd have to say all these programs were landing in a different world. A world, says composer John Cordiano, which embraced classical music. The Bell Telephone Hour presents... It was on the major networks. We had NBC Opera Theater, 
We had operas and concerts on television. Horowitz's return in 65 was a televised event. Classical music was loved, and it was regularly taught in school. It was part of a good curriculum. So, in 1957, the forces for the young people's concerts began to assemble. Carnegie Hall was on board, the orchestra itself, the New York Philharmonic, and CBS, then widely known as the Tiffany Network, so-called for its perceived elegance and high standards. But even with all those venerable institutions lined up, it was still Lenny's show. And here is Mr. Bernstein. He was entirely responsible for all the scripts. Producer-director of the broadcasts was Roger Englander. With Bernstein writing the script and my plotting the shots, we got along terribly well. It was new in its format. It was so simple, but so direct. The idea was to treat young people and classical music with respect. Bernstein believed in teaching kids to listen to music, as he said, for its own values, not through pictures, dancers, cartoons, or other gimmicks. The main ingredients were to be music and him. With that in mind, Englander set up his Camera One. That was a camera in the back of the orchestra looking right at the orchestra's eye view of the conductor, right at Bernstein's face, full on. I wanted to introduce extreme close-ups or very wide shots with Bernstein as the center. That was an angle that nobody had, had ever seen before this time. And when in doubt, that would be the camera that would work most. Nobody could write melodies like Mozart. I assisted Roger, and I also was in on the um, meetings with Lenny on the script. John Corleano, Jr., that is. John Corleano Sr. was the concertmaster, the first violinist of the New York Philharmonic then. His son, a composer, worked with Englander on the camera shots. We both had scores and marked them up and then we compared them and then he made a final score that was what he wanted to cut to because this was live television. Meanwhile, the TV cameras were trying to follow the shot orders to, for example, feature the piccolo during a solo or to get a close-up of the fascinated six-year-old in the third row. This was in the 50s. The cameras were huge, and they lumbered around like mastodons. We had six clunky cameras, and everything had to be prepared in advance because there were no such things as rehearsals. To prepare in advance, they had regular script meetings held in Bernstein's apartment. Lenny had to approve every syllable. He had to write every word himself because he was going to say those words. And if it were done by somebody else, it wouldn't sound real. That, I think, was the beauty of the show. So in the meetings, they'd go over the words and try to reconcile the dreaded timings. And the timings were Lenny moaning and groaning and slapping his head and saying, you can't cut this, it's the best part, and, and lots of cigarette smoke. Mary Rogers was there and Lenny was there. and uh, I mean, the cloud that filled the room in 895 Park Avenue was enormous. Another thing about this new, easy, pleasant kind of music was that it was fun. Those people in lace cuffs and powdered wigs wanted to be entertained. They wanted amusement and pleasure out of music. Producing the concerts for live network broadcast was, by necessity, 
a vexing combination of spontaneity and absolute precision. Time was money. Here was an orchestra of 106 pieces. So if you went over one minute, it would be a tremendous amount just in overtime to the orchestra. And so it went. In the first couple of seasons, Bernstein laid out the most basic ideas about music, as far as he was concerned. What does music mean? What is American music? What is orchestration? And he personally did just about everything that could be done to entertain and engage. In the episode on humor in music, the orchestra plays a piece by Walter Piston. And then Bernstein explains how music can imitate, just like voices. That's one of the oldest ways of making you laugh, by imitating things or people. It's like comedians who do impersonations of famous stars, like impersonating Greta Garbo, I want to be alone, or impersonating Catherine Hepburn, oh, it's lovely, it's just lovely. But he sings Gilbert and Sullivan as a way to understand music and speed. I am the very model of a modern nature general. I've information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England, and I quote the Pisces article from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. It's a mouthful. Well, the... Another time, Bernstein gets the whole Carnegie Hall audience singing around. People didn't see that before with music education. Fun wasn't part of it. It was very dry and intellectual. You're wonderful. You're all hired. In the concert called The Latin American Spirit, Bernstein plays rarely heard music and speaks up for his very humanistic worldview. It's the mingling of these different ancestors' influences and heritages which makes the Latin American spirit what it is, at any rate, in music. The concerts were a magnet for children and their parents in what was a different atmosphere for concert-going in general. If they dressed up for it, kids dressing up to go to a concert, they had a certain feeling that this was a great event. We felt that through them and, of course, through the tube of the television. In this period, television itself was having a bit of an identity crisis as it tried to figure out what it should be. Commercial? Educational? Both those things? I invite each of you to sit down in front of your own television set when your station goes on the air. In a famous speech of the moment, Newton Minow, the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, warned the networks in 1961 to behave responsibly by adding some meaningful programming to what he called the vast wasteland of the TV schedule. I can assure you that what you will observe is a vast wasteland. At that point, CBS found it useful to renew Bernstein's broadcasts for several seasons as proof of its good intentions. Bernstein's own children were happy about that, remembers Jamie Bernstein, the eldest of the three. Alexandra and I would get up in the morning with our dad and accompany him for the entire day. The camera rehearsal for him began at 7 a.m. So that meant that we would wake up around 5.30 and have a sleepy breakfast and drive in semi-darkness across town to Philharmonic Hall. From Philharmonic Hall in Lincoln Center... 
home of the world's greatest musical events. By this time, the concerts had moved slightly uptown to the recently built hall in the Lincoln Center complex, and Bernstein was plugging away at being his charmingly relatable self. You know, the shape of a musical composition is the hardest thing for most people to grasp. He quickly figured out that by using pop music, he could really keep his audience interested and focused. Uh, Let's take a a pop tune. In fact, let's take a typical Beatles tune. And I remember when he used And I Love Her by the Beatles to explain ABA form as in sonata form. First, there's an A section. And he went to the piano and actually sang in his terrible gravelly voice. I give her all my love, that's all I do. And if you saw my love, you'd love her too. I love her. That's A, all right? And the audience just went nuts, and all the girls were squirming and squealing. Roger Englander got all these fabulous audience reactions. That A section is repeated exactly the same. Bernstein loved having his own kids involved. He thrived on the curiosity of younger people. It kind of youthified him, in a way. But it didn't take much to youthify him. I think he always was that young person inside, and that's why he was so good at communicating with young audiences. Night, and so on, right to the end of the piece. Well, but also there's that magic ingredient. I just can't account for why he was so good on television. That represents a small step forward from Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. He came along small, as television came along. They, they arrived simultaneously and were made for each other. It was just one of those things. We all knew he was a genius. I mean, nobody doubted that. Uh, He could look you in the eyes, and as far as you were concerned, Lenny didn't have eyes for anyone else but you. And he could do that to uh, an audience. He could speak to young people and make them feel like grown-ups. And I don't know of anybody else who's ever done that successfully. Well, Bernstein certainly is is, is talented. He has all kinds of talents. Uh, but then there's Bernstein to operate them for certain purposes. As far as his conducting was concerned, Leonard Bernstein's youthified, entertainment-influenced, TV-friendly image was not embraced by all, certainly not by all adults. Music critic B.H. Hagen was interviewed in 1963. He's obviously an extrovert, an exhibitionist, and you can say, well, what difference does it make? Well, if you're, if you're that way, you have no discipline, uh, discipline is important in governing uh, your handling of, uh, of a piece of music. And Harold C. Schoenberg, the chief music critic of the New York Times then, frequently addressed the question of just how much glamour and publicity any classical music career could withstand. He didn't like his conducting and also was very negative about the music. John Corleano says Schoenberg never really warmed up to Bernstein's style. He didn't like the very extravagance and passion that Lenny demonstrated on the podium. But many critics and millions of people loved those qualities and celebrated Bernstein's years with the New York Philharmonic. And the Young People's Concerts had a long run on CBS, several concerts per year. My dear young friends, I am happy and proud to welcome you to our 10th season of Young People's Concerts. They were amazingly successful. The Nielsen ratings were always good. At one point, with 34 million television sets turned on, 
6.5 million of them were tuned to Lenny. And to add to the festivities, this is also the first season in which all our programs will be seen on television in color, which is why I've got this moodishly colorful tie on. The programs were broadcast in 40 countries, joining American exports such as Bonanza and the Flintstones. So he was a hit on television, but in person, maybe even more so. Conductor Marin Alsop, music director of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra and the San Paolo Symphony Orchestra, first heard him at age nine, when her father took her to a young people's concert in New York. I was really overwhelmed when this guy came out to conduct. And first of all, he wasn't wearing the usual um, garb. I think he had a turtleneck on. He looked really cool, is what I remember thinking. And then the most exciting part was that he turned around and started speaking. Today's concert is about a composer called Gustav Mahler. But who is this Mahler? Has any one of you ever heard of him? I'll bet not, or at least only... I thought it was just to me, of course, it was to the whole audience, but his manner was so charismatic and so engaging and so compelling that I just immediately fell in love with him. That's one of the keys to this Mahler puzzle. He is like a child. His feelings are extreme, exaggerated, like young people's feelings. I turned to my father and I said, oh, I get it. That's what I want to do. I want to be the conductor. I think young people can understand Mahler's feelings even better than old ones. Some people teach to live. Bernstein, no question about it, lived to teach. My father was for sure a permanent and compulsive teacher. And everything that happened all the time was somehow about teaching. Bernstein, never fearful of self-examination, knew this well. Much later, in a reflective frame of mind, he said in an interview, I do feel this, for better or worse, that when I do play music for people, that there is an element there of teaching at the same time. There is this heuristic element. I can't deny it, and I can't rid myself of it. He was resigned to it. But what am I going to do? I am cursed with this need to teach. So the young people's concerts and Leonard Bernstein were made for each other, curse and all. For 14 years, they used each other in a most perfect manner, at a time when you could open the foil on your TV dinner, sit back with one of the three television networks, and get a dose of cultural education from a guy called Lenny, looking straight at you. There are geniuses all around us now, on YouTube, in TED Talks, at national conferences and symposia. But before all that, there was a one-man band who taught a generation or two how to listen, and even more, how to actually hear. That's WNYC's Sarah Fishko with our latest American Icon. I met Leonard Bernstein once. I was a freshman in college, and he was on campus for a semester as a lecturer. When I told him I'd memorized the lyrics from my mom's West Side Story album as a little boy and that I liked classical music only because she made me watch young people's concerts, he said, when do I get to meet this blessed mama? You can see videos of one of those young people's concerts on our website, studio360.org.
All this month, we at Studio 360 are asking you to tell your friends about a podcast you like, such as this one. If somebody you know doesn't know how to subscribe and listen to a podcast, you'd be surprised. Show them how simple it is and recommend one of your favorites on social media. And please use the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y-P-O-D, tripod, T-R-Y-P-O-D. And thanks. Coming up, the hot musician Sin Kane mixes practically every kind of music into his newest album. Well, I don't think we really connect with polka too much. So, no polka today, alas, but Sin Kane will perform live right here in our studio. That's still ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. About a decade ago, I started listening to music by the bands of Montreal and Yesayer. And a bit later, I learned of Ahmed Jalab, who had played with Yesayer and of Montreal, but now has his own Afropop band called Sincane, whose music I very much like. They have a brand new album called Life and Live in It and are about to go on a massive global tour. Ahmed Jalab and Sincane, welcome. Hello. So since you're standing up there with your guitar and the band seems all ready to play, before we talk, will you play? Let's do it. What is this song? The song is called Telephone. Excellent. Thank you. 
And now Ahmed Jalab, the mastermind of Sinkane, is sitting down to talk with me. So I, I really do like your music so much, and, and it makes me happy and want to dance and bounce the way music, when I first cared about music a lot around 1969, uh, really did. It's it, working. It is. Well, that, if, if that's the mission, you're doing it. That's what I'm trying to do. Um, you know? The range of influences makes sense, I guess, or it seems to to me, given you've, you've lived a lot of places. You moved around. You, you yeah. didn't start out living in the United States. You moved lived a lot of places in the United States. Your parents came here with you from Sudan in yep. the 80s? 1989. And then you lived all over America. All over America. You know, I got to explore the world with an open mind. It was a really beautiful thing. And so, and and been part of various musical scenes. I mean, of Montreal, you say mm-hmm. uh, this, all kinds of things. <laughs> um, in terms of geographically and musically, what have you drawn from these various places and scenes that have shaped your music soul i think uh, the one thing that connects all of it is soul you know it's all soul music punk and hardcore music is just as soulful and just as uh, uh energetic as african music reggae music country western music indie rock and all that kind of stuff and really what it what it is is if you approach music with an earnest heart and you are really honestly projecting what you want to talk about you're being very soulful so so no disrespect to other kinds of music but like what kind of music wouldn't qualify or what isn't part of your, you know, stew? Well, I, I don't think we really connect with polka too much. You know? Yet. The, yeah, yet. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm sure I'll find it, you know, yeah. I'll find something like that. You lived like in that. Ohio? Yeah. You must have some polka influence. A little bit, you know. So uh, when you're not on tour uh, with Sinkane, you also DJ. You're a big DJ. <laughs> a big DJ, yeah. But I say that because you have generously for us made a DJ playlist yep. of music that has informed this new album, I guess. And I suppose uh, is is a playlist that if you were out some night in charge of the turntables among a thousand sweaty millennial youth, these are the songs you might play. You would certainly impress a lot of people with this playlist. Uh, excellent. Well, and listeners, the full list of songs is a Spotify playlist that uh, you can find on our website, studio360.org. So uh, what I thought we'd do is listen to some tracks off this playlist and have you tell me about them. Absolutely. There's a song I love uh, by William Onyabar, Mm -hmm. who was this great uh, reclusive Nigerian uh, musician. We call Uh, him the the funk master. The funk master. Yeah. No relation to George Clinton or a cousin of George (laughs) Clinton, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're all related. Um, Let's listen to his song, uh, Great Lover. You have seen, you have seen, play where I love you, dear. You can always be sure I love everything about you, dear. And you see, that's William Onyabar, who just died at age 70. Rest uh, in peace. Tell us about him. William Onyabar is a really interesting fellow. He recorded, played, and released all his own music in Nigeria between 1977 and 1985, which is unbelievable to think that someone in Enugu, Nigeria, did that. I mean, even to, to and this And as day. a middle-aged guy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. What I like about it is it just mixes all of these different kinds of energy and just different kinds of styles together to create this really weird and distinct, unique 
uh-huh. vibe. You know, it's it's a little bit tropical. It has some weird breakbeat drum. In addition to Sing Kane, speaking mm-hmm. of William Anyabar, you are part of this tribute band. We are all a part of this. Oh, really? Band. Well, all of you. Yeah. This Sing Kane plus various stars like David Byrne who join you to yeah. be this tribute band called the Atomic Bomb Band. Yeah. It's pretty amazing because all of my idols, all my musical idols, I've been able to perform with through this project. Right. Uh, another song uh, on this Excellent playlist. The musician known as the Mighty Shadow, who does Calypso uh, in Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, this is Let's Get It Together. I want to love you. It feels so good. You can play it on anywhere. It reminds me of like an African version of like LCD sound system or something. Uh huh. Yes, yes, like yes, that, yes, you know? yes. So. That's a funny idea. Yeah. <laughs> he, Winston Bailey, is known not so much in that song, but for his political, social commentary in his, his songs. Um, uh, in this album, do you feel like you were letting th- that part of yourself uh, operate more? I wanted to talk to, about some personal things that I dealt with because I felt like that was the easiest way to connect with other people. you know. And I think what came out of it was a political record. You know, I, my life is political. My father was a politician. The whole reason why I came to the United States was because of politics. Because he, they, you were exiled? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and was your dad a big Sudanese politician? He was a diplomat, yeah, for the Sudanese government. Uh-huh. Um, and we were living in Boston at the time while my father was studying at Boston University. Uh-huh. And the government that he was affiliated with was overthrown by a military coup. And a bunch of his friends started disappearing. And This is like in the 90s, right? 1989, yeah. yeah. And so we applied for asylum in the United States and we gained asylum and we've been here ever since. So I'm curious as a uh, Sudanese, Sudan, one of the seven countries <laughs> from which uh, refugees are not welcome yeah. in the United States. What, what did you make of that? It's really funny, more than anything, you know. Really? I mean, well, <laughs> Glad you have your sense of humor. Well, well I mean, this is how I look at it, okay? It, you you, th- you think about where Sudan lies now. A third of the population lives outside of the country. It's so impoverished. There's nothing really there for people. People are, are really upset and, and depressed at their own government, you know, let alone the United States. It's like the, their own government is really oppressive. So – the people that would come out of Sudan to come to the United States or to go anywhere else, they're they're leaving because they're looking for prosperity. They're looking for opportunity. Like 99.99% of all refugees and immigrants. Exactly. So, yeah. And also those people coming to the U.S. from Sudan are a part of the 1% of Sudan that has money. So – they're not going to come here to want to bomb anything. They're going to come here because they want to buy new sneakers yeah. or try Dunkin' Donuts for the first time. Yeah. You know, th- th- those things don't exist in Sudan. Uh, do you have any family or, or people connect you're connected to who, who in Sudan who are affected by this or not? Yeah, I have a few cousins who have won the green card lottery and have moved to the United States. So one of them, which came six months ago. So he Whew. he can't go back and visit his, his mom, yeah. you know. Well, um, or maybe he'll be able to eventually, but not for a while. Not for a couple. Yeah, not <laughs> yeah. for a while now. Well, there you go. Uh, I'm <laughs> glad you're here. Uh, well, thank you for this sort of masterclass in uh, Sinkane Amajalab influences. Thank you very much. Uh, and for giving us that great playlist. Uh, but now I want to hear another song by you guys. We can surely do that for you. And that is what? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yep.
Kane's new album, Life and Livin' It, is out now. He and they are on their world tour, and you can listen to that playlist that Sin Kane made for us, all the songs on it, at studio360.org. That's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our team includes Jocelyn Gonzalez, Andrew Adam Newman, Louis Mitchell, Daniel Guimet, Sam Kim, Skylar Swenson, Tommy Bazarian, Zoe Saunders, Max Gibson. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks for listening. Studio 360's American Icons Project is made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Great ideas brought to life. And by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. Artworks. PRI. Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, American icons are not just history lessons. They are right now. If you want to understand this country and its people and what it means to be optimistic and complex and tragic and wrong and courageous, you need to go to Monticello. Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. That's next time in Studio 360's American icons from PRI and WNYC.